Our sermon scripture is Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly place, places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Time is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that the voice of the Son would be heard, and that those who are dead would be brought from death to life. And we pray for those of us who have already been brought from death to life, that you would help us to remember. Lord, when all is said and done and all hearts are bowed and stirred beneath the influence of your word, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross of Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. What are the essential practices of a Christian? What are those things that a Christian should set his or her life to do routinely in order to be faithful to God and grow in holiness? You might say, Blaine, that's an easy question. A Christian should read the Bible. A Christian should pray. A Christian should go to church. A Christian should be obedient to Christ. A Christian should share the gospel. And perhaps on and on you could go this way. And you would be right. A Christian should do those things. There is one thing, however, that is of equal weight, importance, value for the life of a Christian that I'm fearful none of us would answer as readily. Remembrance. Remembrance. You see, throughout the Bible, God calls his people to remember, be it through feasts like the Passover or the stones erected at the Jordan River as a testimony to what God has done for his people. However, it's important to see that the the biblical pattern of remembrance is not just merely calling to mind a past event. It is that, but it's more than that. It's calling to mind a past event with confidence that God will do the same in the future. That is, God's people look to what God has done in the past, and then they look to the future with hope that God will do the same. What this means is that remembering what God has done in the past and what God will do in the future is what fuels the Christian in the present. 
You and I, we, we know this. The Lord's Supper is an excellent example of how this, this works. In the table, we have remembrance. In the elements, we have remembrance of what God has done. Christ Jesus was crucified for you. His blood was spilt for you. His body was broken for you. We remember what God has done, but we also remember what God will do. Namely, Christ will return. And in partaking in this act of remembrance, though it's more than just that, we are fueled, we're energized unto faith and obedience at this present time. Are we not? Now, if you should pursue a life of remembrance, if remembrance is something that you should do, then what you should not do is forget. There's just one problem. We as human beings are so forgetful, aren't we? We are forgetful creatures. We forget all kinds of things. We forget our wallets and our keys. We forget milk on the way home from work. We forget all kinds of things. But sometimes the consequences of our forgetfulness are not so trivial. Not so long ago, there was a man in New York who was on his way to work. And on his way to work, he was supposed to drop off his one-year-old twins. Well, he gets to work, um, and at the end of the long, hard day, he returns to his car to go home and realizes that he never dropped his kids off. He had forgotten them. Sometimes when we forget things, there are tragic and devastating and life-ruining consequences. And I would have you know this morning that being spiritually forgetful is just as tragic, devastating, and life-ruining. If you do not remember what God has done for you in the past, and you do not remember what God will do for you in the future, then you will be crippled in the present. You will become backslidden, stagnant. And it does not help you either that you have enemies surrounding you on every side trying to exploit your forgetfulness and cause you to forget God. And so, in light of your natural inclination, my natural inclination to forget, and the whole host of enemies working against us, working against you, I ask you this morning, where are you? Where's your heart? Have you forgotten? Well, in the first three chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he reminds them of what God has done for them in Christ and what God will do for them in Christ. Then in chapters four through six, he expounds on the present significance of those past and future workings of the God of all power and grace. So, in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, the text that we're gonna look at this morning, the Apostle Paul tells us that to be faithful to God in the present, we must know what power and what grace he has worked for us in the past and will work for us in the future. He prays as much in chapter one. If you're not already turned there, turn there, please. Look at what he says, chapter one, verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Look down to verse 18 that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. 
Having prayed such, Paul turns to help us know the present hope of our calling by reminding us of God's past work of power and grace with sight to the glorious inheritance he will give us in Christ in the coming ages. So I say again, to be faithful to God in the present, you must know what power and grace he worked for you in the past and will work for you in the future. Therefore, Paul says, if you are to know these things and so be faithful at the present time, you need to remember. Look at 2.11. This is what he exhorts us to do. This is the exhortation. Remember. Remember what, Paul? Remember your once dreadful condition and depraved state. Remember God's work of incomparable power and immense grace. And remember God's definite purpose in your due place. First, he calls us to remember our once dreadful condition and depraved state. Paul writes, starting in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God, through the apostle Paul, says three things about our once dreadful condition and depraved state. Three things you need to remember about who you once were. First, you were dead. You were dead. In the beginning, when Adam sinned, he brought both physical death and spiritual death into the world. Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. But what does it mean to be spiritually dead? Paul helps us out in chapter 4, verse 18. You don't have to turn there, just listen. They... That's Gentiles, that's, that's you and me. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So being spiritually dead implies a, a darkness of understanding. John says the people love the darkness rather than the light. It implies an alienation from the life of God, a separation from Christ, as he says in 2.11, and thus having no hope. It implies a hardness of heart. That's what's under it all. A hard heart, a callous heart. As other scripture will say, an uncircumcised heart. A heart that is set only on the flesh, which is death. Paul says something to that effect here. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Trespasses here carries the idea of a specific act of transgression against God's law. Do you understand what I mean? God says, do not commit murder, and you murder. God says, don't commit adultery, and you commit adultery. That's, that's what a trespass is. A sin is more of a comprehensive account of human evil. But what's Paul saying? You're dead in trespasses and sins. He's saying the grave in which your corpse lies is your trespasses and sins. That's where you are, and you can go nowhere else. You're dead in sin. You are not able not to sin. That's where you are. You were dead in your grave of sin and you had no hope for life unless 
God. So remember your once dreadful condition and depraved state. First, that you were dead. But second, you were enslaved. You were enslaved. That phrase at the beginning of verse 2, in which you once walked, speaks of your manner of life. How you lived day by day. You lived, you walked according to the age of this world, according to the ruler of the domain of the air, and according to the passions of the flesh. In your death, you were a captive of these three things. In your spiritual death, you were a slave of these three things. When Paul says the age of this world, he's speaking about a whole social value system, alien to God, opposed to God. He calls it elsewhere the present evil age. Is that which in Romans 12 too, he tells us not to be conformed to. It's the secular society that holds sway over you with all its luster and attractions. You were a slave to it. You were a slave to this world and you had no hope for life unless God. That's not it, is it though? You were a slave to this world, but you were also a slave to the ruler of the domain of the air, that spirit who's now working among the sons of disobedience. Who is this? This is the devil. You know this. You, you remember what Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians 4, don't you? He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The devil is the God of this world, the ruler of the domain of the air, meaning all that space between the moon and the earth, this stuff that's around us, this stuff that we breathe. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying that the, the devil's domain is here and it's there. It's in your bathroom. It's in your bedroom. It's by your pillow. It's there when you go to work. It's there when you go to school. It's anywhere there is air that you can breathe. That's where the devil's rule is present. Now, don't catch the wrong idea. God is sovereign over the devil. Yes, he is. Satan is a lion on a leash and a wounded one at that. But what's the point? The point is that you were a slave to him. And he's working even now along with his demonic forces, to blind the minds of unbelievers and hold them captive in their unbelief. And the point is that he once had you. You were a slave to the devil. And you had no hope for life unless God. Paul just keeps going, doesn't he? He plummets the depths in death, you were enslaved to the world, to the devil, and to the passions of the flesh. Look at verse 3 again. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Uh, notice the nuance here Paul gives to spiritual death. Being spiritually dead does not mean that we don't do things. It does not mean that we, we, we don't have desires and wills. It does not mean that we are robots and puppets. No, we have significant desires and wills, and we do plenty of things. The point is, they're all covered in death. They're debased, they're wicked, and they can be nothing else. In the flesh, you could not follow God's will. You could not please God. We were slaves to the passions of the flesh. Whatever was most to your pleasure, you did. You obeyed every whim and whip of the flesh, which includes every evil 
deceitful desire that arises from the human bentedness to rebel against God and self-destruct. That was you. You were a slave to the passions of the flesh. You were a slave to the flesh and you had no hope for life, none whatsoever, unless God. Remember your once dreadful condition and depraved state. First, that you were dead. Second, that you were enslaved. And third, you were condemned. Look at the the rest of verse three, the second half of verse three. And you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here we come to the end of it, don't we? What is our wretched, dreadful condition? What is our depraved state? By nature, that is by birth, we were children destined for the wrath of God. That is what this phrase means. We were headed for the wrath of God. This is the doctrine of original sin. Original sin means that by birth, by nature, we were guilty and we were corrupt. We were guilty in our covenant head, Adam, and we were guilty in ourselves by incurring the wages of sin, death. And we were corrupt because sin so pervasively covered every aspect of who we were. We could do nothing else. In the flesh, we could not please God. We could not follow God's will. We cannot fix ourselves. That's the point. You think that you can, you can bring your dead body back to life, that you can burst the shackles of the world, the flesh, and the devil and rise up from this grave? You're wrong. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what Paul says here. This is what God says about your once dreadful condition and depraved state. Remember it. Never forget it. That's who you were. And if you're in this room this morning and you're not a Christian, this is who you are. You know, one of the most fascinating things and most frightening things in our universe are black holes. I don't know if you know much about black holes, but they're these essentially just massive stars. They're so massive that their gravitational pull is so strong that not even light can escape from it. That's what makes them appear black. Well, at at a black hole, the edge of it, the scientists call the event horizon. And basically, that's the point of no return. Once you get to the event horizon, your end is inevitable. You're headed to the middle of that black hole, which scientists call the singularity. And you will be infinitely compressed and compacted, and there's, there's no escape once you get to that point. That's not unlike what we see here with our once dreadful condition and depraved state. When we came into this world, when we were born, it's like we were born on the event horizon. And from the moment of our birth, we were headed to the center of the black hole. Destruction, death, And not only that, but we're so deluded. We look to the singularity, we look to the center, and we think that it's light. We think that it's beauty. We think that it's salvation, and so we go there happily. Remember your once dreadful condition and depraved state. You were a corpse in your grave of sin. You were a slave to this world of the flesh and the devil, and you were condemned under the wrath of God. You had no hope for life, none whatsoever. There was nothing you could do. There was nothing you could say. You could not escape. You were in the clutches of a black hole. You had no hope unless, verse 4, but God Do you feel those words this morning? 
But God, if you don't feel those words, perhaps you're still dead in sin. But God, praise God for but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus Remember who you were, but never ever stop there. You also must remember God's work of incomparable power and immense grace. Remember God's work of incomparable power and immense grace. The Apostle Paul, he tells us two things here about God's work of power and grace. First, he tells us what moved God. What moved God? We were hopeless. We were dead, enslaved, and condemned. But God, because of being rich in mercy, Paul tells us, made us alive. God is rich and abundant in mercy. His mercy is great. His mercy is more. Do you understand what that means? For an infinite God to be rich in mercy means there is no end. It flows and it overflows forever and ever and ever. It is incalculable and infinite. It is inexhaustible and immeasurable. It is immense and incomparable. It is imitable. Not only that, but for God to be rich in mercy, one writer says, means that he is not tight-fisted with it, but open-handed. He's not frugal, but lavish. He's not poor, but rich. It means his mercy is not cold and calculating and cautious like ours. No, it is unlimited. It is flood-like. It is sweeping, magnanimous. It means that on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy and rich heart we had. God is rich in mercy. But what is his mercy? Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion or mercy to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Mercy is this intimate, heartfelt, ancient compassion that's more than just pity. It's God looking on our weak state, looking on our weak frame, knowing that we are dust, knowing that we are dead, enslaved, and condemned, and can't do anything about it, knowing that we deserve his just wrath, and still moving towards us with an infinite, ancient, heartfelt compassion. Paul's not finished. God is rich in mercy, and his mercy moved him. But not only that, look at the next parallel phrase. Because of the great love with which he loved us. This is not just some ordinary love. This is not just some other love like you and I experience. This is a great love. Paul repeats what we saw in verses 1 to 3. Do you see that at the beginning of verse 5? He did this even when we were dead. Do you see the wonder of God's great love with which he has loved us? Romans 5.8 God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You and I can hardly even comprehend what that means, that the eternal son would become a man and would be crucified for you and for me. Oh, see 
what great love with which God has loved you. His love cannot be exhausted. It is a well that never runs dry. As God is infinite, so is his great love. It is limitless and lasting. It is lavish and long-suffering. It is life-changing and liberating. It would be easier to draw the depths of the seas out with a bucket than to mine the depths of God's rich mercy and great love. You think about that for just a moment. You're on vacation. You go to the coast. You go to one of those shops that has everything that you could possibly want but nothing that you need. And you go there and you, you get this little pink plastic sandcastle bucket. But you're on a mission. You're not going to use it to build sandcastles. You're going to use it to drain the Pacific. So you get out there into the, the, the water and you start scooping and dumping and scooping and dumping and scooping and dumping. You work and work and work from sunrise until sunset. And finally, you step back to look at your work. And what do you see? It's the same. In fact, it's worse because the tide has come in. <sighs> Christian, it would be easier to take that little pink plastic sandcastle bucket and drain the seven seas than to mine the depths of God's rich mercy and great love. Paul's still not finished. He summits the heights. What moved God, his rich mercy, his great love, but something else, Paul breaks his sentence to tell us, it's so important, you must understand. By grace you have been saved, or because of grace you are saved. And Paul's gonna repeat this in verse eight. Why? To emphasize beyond all doubt that our entire salvation is because of God's immense grace and nothing else. Grace is not just the unmerited favor of God. As if to say we're in a neutral position. We're not. We were dead, enslaved, and condemned. Grace, one pastor says, is the disposition and the power of God to make living people out of dead people. Therefore, grace is not God's response to our initiative. As if to say, first you will believe, and then God will make you alive because of your belief no. What does God say here? He says, it's all because of grace. It's all grace. It's God's immense grace. By the grace of God, we are all that we are. Oh, see what incredible, immense mercy, love, and grace that moved God to save us, moved God to save you. And the fact that God does not have this kind of mercy, love, grace on everyone should cause you to stop in your tracks and fall to your knees and worship. He has mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion and he chose to shower it upon you when you deserved his just wrath. This is what moved God. What does he say to Moses? The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Praise God for his rich mercy and great love and immense grace. Without it, we'd still be dead, enslaved, and condemned. So remember God's work of incomparable power and immense grace. First, remember what, what moved God. But second, remember what God did. Paul gives us three verbs here to describe what God was moved by himself to do. He made us alive, he raised us, and he seated us. It's important not to lose sight of what Paul is doing in this text. He says, you who were once dead, 
God made alive so that he would show his immeasurable grace forever and ever. So God making us alive is at the center of this text. And when Paul says that God made us alive, he points to the reality of regeneration. The apostle Peter says something similar. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Being made alive, being born again, being regenerated are synonymous with one another. This is God's work to take a person who by nature was a child of wrath and create in them a new nature by grace. This is exactly the image Paul gives in verse 10, if you'll look at it, when he says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ. Now that's important. Regeneration takes place in Christ and in Christ alone. If you look back at chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul tells us that Christ was the one who was raised from the dead. Christ was the one who was seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And what happens in our salvation? We are united to Christ. We become sharers and participants in Christ. Just as he is raised, so are we. Just as he is seated, so are we. Every spiritual blessing flows to us in Christ. How glorious is that? Do you see the wonder of God's work of regeneration? We who were dead are made alive. We who were enslaved are now raised up. We who were condemned under the wrath of God are now seated in the highest place of honor and love at the right hand of the Father with Jesus. We are new creations. And this is what God did when he made us alive. And it took incomparable power. You were dead. You had to be resurrected. And only God could do that. You needed the Lord Jesus standing outside your tomb, and you needed him to call out to you. Lazarus, come forth. This is what incomparable power and immense grace was necessary to make you a Christian. Remember it. Now, if this is true, if God has brought us from death to life, has raised us and seated us with Christ, then a couple of things should be noted about our present realities. First, you as a Christian because you've been made alive, raised, and seated with Christ, you should rule over those things which once held you captive. You should rule over them. You are no longer their slave. Don't buy into the lies of the flesh. Don't let the flesh tell you that its pleasure is better. Remember that it lasts only for a second and then disappears. In those moments of temptation, you need to remember that you are in Christ, and in him you are alive, you are raised, and you are seated. Maybe you find yourself like Neville Longbottom in the Sorcerer's Stone and you just can't seem to remember what you've forgotten. Well, to, to help you remember the glories that are given you in Christ, you can do a, a few things. First, memorize scripture. Store it up in your heart. I think you'll find when temptation comes, the Spirit will bring it to mind and He will deliver you. Learn some rich, powerful worship songs and sing them all the time. When temptation comes, sing in its face. Martin Luther, the reformer, said, Come, let us sing a psalm and drive away the devil. Also find help in community. Get plugged in. Find a friend to text regularly to remind each other the glories that are given you in Christ. So rule, but second, rest. Christ has sat down at the right hand of the Father. And do you see the wonder of what I'm about to say? You are seated with him. So rest in your Lord and Savior. What does he say? What's his call? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The key here is that resting is not being inactive. It's taking up the yoke of Jesus. It's working out your salvation with fear and trembling. But at the same time, it's not some sort of religious measuring up. It's a faithful sitting down. It's also running into the arms of your Lord and Savior, Jesus, when all others fail you. Has your father, who was supposed to love you, deserted you? Has your mother, have your friends betrayed you? Find rest in the love of Jesus, who will never, ever forsake you. So, rule and rest. Remember who you were. Remember what God has done. But you can't stop there either. You must know why God has saved you and what he purposes to do for you. These are crucial questions because to be faithful to God in the present, you must know what power and grace he worked for you in the past, but also will work for you in the future. So Paul says, finally, remember God's definite purpose and your due place. Remember God's definite purpose and your due place. Look at verse 7 to 10 again. Why did God make us alive? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, so why does God do this work of incomparable power and immense grace? Why did God make us alive in Christ? Why did God save you? For the glory of grace. God made us alive so that in the coming ages, verse 7, that, that, that's the future. That's countless age upon age forever and ever. God made us alive so that for countless future ages, he would display, he would magnify, he would demonstrate what? His immeasurable grace. The immeasurable riches of his grace. Just think about that word immeasurable. How do you show off something that can't be measured? You take an eternity to do it. That is where we're going. That is what God is going to do. He's going to magnify his immeasurable grace for countless future ages and kindness to us in Christ. We are trophies of God's grace. He won us when he made us alive, and he'll never lose us. He'll keep us forever and ever for the glory of grace. You need to see this. God saved you for his glory and for your joy, for your benefit. And it will wash up over you wave after wave for all eternity, all in Christ, forever in Christ by grace. Now again, don't miss Paul's logic here. If you still wonder, how is grace going to be magnified? Look at verses 8 and 9. For, it's an important word, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace will be magnified forever and ever because our entire salvation is a work of God. We saw this already. By grace you have been saved, or because of grace you are saved. And now Paul adds the phrase, through faith. We are saved on the grounds of grace through the means of faith. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Unless we are tempted to think something we ought not to think, Paul expands on what he means. He says, this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. What is this? 
This is grace. This is faith. This is being saved. The whole thing, being saved by grace through faith, is not your doing. It is a gift of God. Why? So that no one may boast. So that every mouth would be shut. I wonder, is your mouth shut this morning? Where is your boast? Is it in yourself? Or is it in Christ alone? Is it in grace? You must say, it was all him. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I'd still be in that grave. Paul just keeps going, doesn't he? He's relentless. And he provides a fitting conclusion to this text. If you're tempted to object to what he just said in verses 8 9, really, Paul, uh, even faith is a gift? Paul's gift to you is verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. No one can boast before the Lord because we are new creations created in God, by God in Christ. We're the handiwork of God's sovereign hand. And don't miss the nail in the coffin here. Why did God make us alive? Why did he make us a new creation? So that we would do good works for the glory of grace. How? You weren't saved by works. You were saved for works. And the works that you now do that prove the genuineness of your faith do not provide grounds for boasting. Why? Because God prepared them beforehand that you should walk in them. Do you see what Paul's doing? He wants to make it clear beyond all doubt that everything is because of grace. All that we have, all that we are, is because of God's immense grace by his gracious hand. So what should you say? You should say with Paul, Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If this is true, if God has saved you for the glory of grace forever and ever, then again, a couple of things should be noted about our present realities. First, you must see the end for which you are headed, and you must love it. You must love it. Don't forget what God is going to do for you for countless future ages. Look to it, remember it, and love it. The heavenly Christian will always be the lively Christian. So love. But second, if God has saved you for the glory of grace, live for it now. Make your boast in Christ alone now. Magnify grace in all that you do now. As a new creation, walk in the good works which God has prepared for you. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Live in Christ. Live for grace now. It doesn't matter what you do. Are you a student? Do it for the glory of grace. Are you a nurse? Do it for the glory of grace. Do you flip burgers at McDonald's? Do it for the glory of grace. Live in Christ. Live for the glory of grace now. I conclude by going back to where I started. Where are you this morning? Where's your heart? Have you forgotten what God has done for you in Christ? Have you forgotten what God will do for you in Christ for countless future ages? Have you been so overwhelmed by your enemies on every side? Are you stagnant? Are you backslidden? Are you in danger of shipwreck? No matter where you are today, if you're a Christian, And you hear my voice. The call is the same. 
Remember what God has done for you. And remember what God will do for you. You know, it's really quite amazing that Paul writes this letter from a prison cell. And not only that, but he writes it one of the worst times in history for Christians. Not, not sometime after Emperor Nero is going to begin to slaughter Christians across the empire. And Paul's own death is on the horizon. It's into this. And to whatever circumstances you find yourself this morning, that Paul calls us to remember. That God, through Paul, calls you to remember. He reminds us that if we want to know the power and grace of God, and so be faithful at the present. We need not look further than what God has done and look forward to what God will do. So, remember your once dreadful condition and depraved state. Remember God's work of incomparable power and immense grace. Remember God's definite purpose in your due place. Do this and you will be fueled to endure the terrors, the trials, the sorrows you face in the present. Final word to the person who's not a Christian. See your desperate hopelessness. You are a corpse in your grave of sin. You're a slave to the world, the flesh, and the devil. You are condemned under the wrath of God, and you have no hope for life, none whatsoever. There is nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can say. You cannot escape. You are in the clutches of a black hole. You have no hope for life unless God. Your only hope is for God to make you alive. So turn to him in repentance and faith. Look unto Christ who bore the wrath of God for all who would believe in him. All who would place their faith in him. Will you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. And how in it you remind us of who we once were. How you remind us of your amazing work. And how you remind us of what you will do for us for countless future ages. Would you help us to remember? And so be faithful at this present time, no matter what we face. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.